All right, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We're out of Galatians now for the next few weeks. Psalm 22 is on page 457. As we are beginning a four-week series leading up to Easter called Just As He Said. I mentioned this last week, but, but the conviction for this series uh, came out of a single phrase at the end of Matthew 28, verse 5. When the women came upon the empty tomb on Easter morning, and an angel appeared to them and said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. The angel could have proclaimed, He's not here, he is risen, and ended there. So why add the phrase, just as he said? Does that mean anything? I think it does. And throughout these next few weeks, we will see how the resurrection was always God's plan for the renewal of his creation, and then we will see why that matters. So we will see that it was always the plan, and then we will see why it matters, which brings us to Psalm 22. We're going to start in the Old Testament the first couple weeks and then move our way into the Gospels as we get towards Easter. And for Psalm 22, before I read the whole thing, I I think it is worth noting before I do that the Gospels tell us that when Jesus was on the cross, in his final hours, his mind was fixated on Psalm 22. And of everything he could have been thinking about before dying, he was thinking on these words, that I'm about to read. And let that just sit with you for a moment. Uh, Spurgeon says of Psalm 22 that we, we should read reverently, for if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it's Psalm 22. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read verses 1 to 26, and then I will pause, and I'm going to invite everyone, you can stay seated, but everyone to read with me verses 27 to 31. All right? Stay alert. I'm going to read 1 to 26. I'll pause, I'll invite you, and then from the screen we'll all read together out loud verses 27 to 31. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, 
and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the, in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All right, all together now, starting in verse 27. Join with me. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. We will not have time to go verse by verse through this entire psalm. Although I do hope that some of you will take the opportunity after today to study this further, because there is so much here. But this morning, I want to approach it from the angle that when Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead, it was not a new thing God was doing, but the fulfillment of an old thing, just as he said. And then, Lord willingly, show us how that impacts our lives today. So here's how we're going to look at Psalm 22. First, the prophecy of resurrection. Second, the promise of resurrection. And then third, the purpose of resurrection. Prophecy, the promise, and the purpose. Starting with number one, the prophecy. If you look in your Bibles, the, the subtitle of Psalm 22 says, To the Choir Master. Meaning that this was a psalm written by King David for the people of God to sing together in the assembly. And clearly, when David wrote this, he was in a dark period of his life. This is an agonizing psalm of one who is suffering deeply. And not only that, but the agony of one who is suffering and feels that God is not answering his cries. Right? This is not written by a man who was far from God, who felt distant from God. Quite the opposite. King David, very close to God, which is why he's in such agony. Because he is so close, it makes the silence in this moment all the more painful. Isn't it true that it does not hurt as much when someone you're not close to does not answer you? 
It very much hurts when someone you love, someone you are close to, does not answer your call or your text or your plea to them. Verse 2, oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man. Verse 11, trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, which, which means a broken fragment off a piece of ancient poverty. I'm like a broken piece. It's important to remember that Psalms are poetry. I know many of you know that, that they are ancient Hebrew poetry. It is an art form, a literary art form, where vivid imagery is used, and often hyperbole is used to make a point. But what separates Psalm 22 from the other lament psalms that David wrote is that there is nothing in David's life that reflects the reality of what he's writing here. It is a dark time where he is hurting, but he is using such strong language to express his hurt and pain, almost to overstate it in a poetic way to, to, to try to have people grasp what he's feeling. And, and this is something, again, we, we do and we hear daily uh, uh, when children, and maybe not always just children, say, I'm, I'm starving. I don't think I can take another step to the table because I'm so hungry. It feels like I'm going to die if I don't eat something. Overstating it to, to make a point. Or if you are so sore, maybe you went back to the gym for the first time and you were like that, that kind of soreness where like everything in your body hurts, like you didn't even realize you had body parts that until they started hurting, right? Like, like that kind of hurt. Or you get a stomach bug and you're so kind of laid out in bed and you, can't, you say, I can't even move. I can't even get out of bed. It's not literal, but I want you to know how bad I'm hurting. Or over the past couple weekends, on a less serious note, your bracket got busted in March Madness, and you commit, I will never watch sports ever again. I can't take it. I don't want to care this much. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I am done with sports. You are overstating the point. In order to show your pain, we all know you're not done with sports. But we use poetic language to let others know how much this hurts. And in David's mind, as he is writing this, he is being so far-fetched beyond his own suffering. David writes of a crucifixion that he describes but never experienced. Yet as time would have it unbeknownst to him, what was poetry for David would be reality for Jesus. Psalm 22 is an explicitly messianic psalm. It speaks of a Messiah, meaning it prophesizes, it foretells of something in the future. And what was figurative for King David would be literal for King Jesus. James Boyce is a longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia uh, last century. He noted something that I did not realize or really connect the dots on until studying for this passage, that in the, uh, the kind of literal steps leading up to his own death, Jesus was primarily concerned with other people. 
So after his judgment was secured by Pontius Pilate, Jesus was led through the streets of the city bearing his cross and then hung on that cross. And throughout that, we see in the Gospels that in that process, he saw women weeping and he saw them and addressed them saying, do not weep for me. When the soldiers drove the nails through his feet and his hands, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He told the dying thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He cared for his own mother at the cross by entrusting him to John, saying, dear woman, here is your son, meaning John. And then to John, here is your mother. He was concerned with caring for and addressing others even as he hung on the cross. But that all changed at noon. Scripture says, in the middle of the day, a great darkness came over the land, lasting until three o'clock. And starting at noon, shrouded in darkness, these became private hours for Jesus. And the first words out of his mouth, once darkness came over the land, were the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his final hours, his mind was on Psalm 22, and in that moment, it was revealed to us that Psalm 22 are the words of Jesus, not David. What was poetry for David was reality for Jesus, the eternal king, the suffering king. And again, I hope some of you will go study this further, but for those who are familiar with Matthew 27, you see the prophecy fulfillments of Psalm 22 all over. Uh, verses 7 and 8, all who see me mock me, they wag their heads. He, he who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, since Matthew 27. Verse 16 of Psalm 22, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all of my bones a gruesome image of someone who was beaten and whipped so badly and then stripped naked that his bone, bones were visible. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Also in Matthew 27. You know, what's interesting is that the accounts of the crucifixion that you find in the Gospels are fairly matter-of-fact. Uh, relatively short in description, maybe a paragraph or two that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, accounting his final moments. But the most graphic picture of Christ's agony is not found in the Gospels. It's here. Psalm 22. The, the kind of imagery that would make your face contort as you're reading it and the images pop in your head, like almost to the point, if you're not careful, you would say, you know what, that's a little much. It's a little too much, a little too graphic for me. Again, Spurgeon calls Psalm 22 a photograph of our Lord's saddest hours. But just consider that for a moment. David wrote Psalm 22 1,000 years before Jesus was born, before the Roman Empire even existed, before the practice of crucifixion was even invented. How do you explain that? God is the divine author of all of Scripture, and it all points to Jesus. That's number one, the prophecy. Number two, 
the promise. You might have picked up as we were reading it that Psalm 22 contains one of the greatest and abrupt reversals in all of Scripture. And it occurred at verse 21. Because for the first 20 verses of Psalm 22, you would be hard-pressed to find any other stretch of Scripture that is as dark and as painful and agonizing than those verses. Which again, looking backwards, makes sense when you realize that they are speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus. And then verse 21, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it goes to the final 10 verses, verses 22 to 31, become among the most glorious, victorious, and triumphal verses in the Bible. Like, what a reversal. With no explanation other than that phrase in verse 21, you have rescued me. We don't know how, we don't know why or when, but everything changed. From the deepest of valleys to the highest of mountains, from darkness to light, from death to life. Psalm 22, like many parts of the Old Testament, only makes sense when it is read backwards in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Can you imagine being in Israel in the thousand years between when David wrote it and Jesus existed? Can you imagine singing this in this room as a church, singing these words? Wouldn't you walk out being like, what in the world was that? Like, what did we just sing? That makes no sense. That was like two songs put together. But then it all makes sense when you read it backwards. Without God, there is no life after death. You cannot talk about triumph in this world or that God's design was always one of renewal unless God's plan also climaxed in the resurrection, a death-to-life transformation. The world operates in a life-to-death economy, but God's economy works from death to life. And Jesus being raised from the dead was not a new plan, was not an emergency plan B, but rather, in the fullness of time, it was the fulfillment of the only plan, God's plan, to redeem and restore a fallen creation through Jesus Christ. That is the story of the Bible. That is the story of Psalm 22, because that is the story of Jesus. Psalm 22 is incredibly good news. It is good news, not despite the gruesome pain and suffering that is within it, but because of it. Jesus was truly forsaken by the Father, not out of punishment for his sins, but our sins. Psalm 22 changes, and it puts a lump in your throat. The moment you realize that Jesus is not suffering in order to just relate with us, but he is suffering because of us. He is our substitute. He is paying the penalty we deserve for our sin, for the wages of sin are death. He took our place. 
So as you read the first half of Psalm 22, we're not the innocent sufferer crying out to God, although on some level Jesus can relate to the suffering of his people. We know that, but that's not the, not the primary, that's not our role in Psalm 22 primarily. Where are we in the first half of Psalm 22? We're the ones mocking him, taunting him, dividing his garments for our gain and inflicting pain upon him. And it is not until we see that we are dead in our sin that we will appreciate the great reversal of verse 21. That Jesus chose to go to the cross. He chose to be forsaken by the Father out of his great love for us. And because of his obedience to the Father in order to heal us to restore what is fractured in us and in the creation around us. And so the reason why Jesus was fixated on Psalm 22 was not only because of verse 1, why have you forsaken me? It's not only because of the agony of death and being forsaken, but it was also because of the triumph that he knew was coming. I want you to think about this with me. Jesus' first words on the cross, which I just mentioned, once darkness took over the land, were that first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember his last words on the cross? Before taking his last breath, it is finished. And the final line of Psalm 22, he has done it. Indeed, it is finished. The joy of triumph the promise of resurrection is the hope that Jesus dwelled on that empowered him by the Spirit to persevere through his darkest moment. Not only securing his own resurrection, but for securing the resurrection for all who will believe in him and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And so at the beginning of Psalm 22, we're the ones mocking him and putting him on the cross. And by the end of Psalm 22... We are now included in the promise of those who were saved by his blood, restored and healed and victorious and counted righteous before the Father by faith. What a reversal. Now we see ourselves in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This great reversal in Psalm 22 can be summed up in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, and I believe we have it on the screen. When Paul writes to the church, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, what a reversal. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the promise that those who turn from their sin and turn toward the Lord, as David writes in verse 27, will receive new hearts. May your hearts live forever. Just as he said. 
Have you turned to the Lord? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Are you included in the promise? Do you know you can be? If not, brother or sister, that is the call on your life. Don't delay a day longer. May your hearts live forever by faith. Turn to him today. And then, number three, the purpose. I have to be quick here, but I want to ensure every week of this series we are asking, why does this matter for us today? Why is understanding that God's plan for resurrection has always been the plan? Why is that so important? I think the way resurrection often gets talked about, and we'll pick this up again next week, it often gets talked about, especially around Easter, is that it is only a future promise we have. Resurrection gets a lot of action around Easter, and then it kind of drops off the rest of the year because it's a promise that we think is just for after we die. After you die, don't worry, no matter how bad this world is, you will live forever with God. And that is a good promise, but when we keep it only there, it truncates or it cheapens the gospel message. And it often boils down in its worst version of, hey, if you just say this prayer, you'll be with God forever in heaven and your loved ones. And then no real care about how you're living in this world. This is your insurance policy for eternity. Just say this prayer, these words. Raise that hand, come forward, and then you're good. That's a cheapened version of the resurrection and the promise it holds. In a relationship with Jesus today, the start of eternal life today, power to live in the light of the resurrection today is replaced with using Jesus as just a means to an end to be reunited with people you love later. And it is tragic because many who said that prayer at some point in their life and nothing changed in their life are still clinging to some moment they had a long time ago to say that I'm good because I did that then. But the resurrection of Jesus is so much more powerful, so much more impactful for us today in that it shapes the way we pursue holiness in our own lives and that we commit to the mission of our lives. Just two quick applications for us to end There are a million. Here's two. The resurrection matters today for our pursuit of holiness. Today. Um, Author Jen Wilkins speaks of how the resurrection brings true freedom from sin, not just theologically, but experientially today, and she gives this framework that I'm just going to share you her framework because I can't improve upon it. Her memorable framework to explain how the resurrection matters for your life today has to do with penalty, power, and presence. Three words. A lot of peace for you today. A lot of peace. Penalty, power, and presence. We'll have these on the screen. First, we can rest in our freedom from sin's penalty because of the resurrection. We were justified the moment we placed our faith in Christ. We were counted as righteous. And the penalty of sin no longer applies in us. For, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Second, we can labor in our freedom from sin's power. We are being sanctified. We were justified. We are being sanctified as the Spirit works in us and restores in us a will 
and power that we desire to walk by the Spirit and not the flesh. And we still sin, and we still struggle, and this process is always far longer and more painful than we'd like it to be. But over time, we will learn increasingly to choose holiness, to be released from sin's power, to grow into spiritual maturity. And then third, Wilkins says, we can hope in our freedom from sin's presence, meaning we will be glorified. And there's a day coming when we will enter into the presence of our Lord forever and our soul will be at rest and sin's presence will be gone and we will live in eternal communion with the Lord and with one another. This is why the resurrection matters and empowers our pursuit of holiness today. It assures that we were saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power and we one day will be saved from sin's presence. And then lastly, the resurrection shapes our commitment to mission. In Psalm 22, the first verse following the great reversal, verse 21, says, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the Gospels, the first recorded words that the risen Jesus spoke is when he came upon Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, and you know what he said? Quote, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Once someone receives a new heart, they cannot help but worship. They cannot help but proclaim his name to all who will hear. That this is the best news in the world. This is the best reversal in the history of the cosmos. The curse has been reversed. Death has been conquered, which brings us to the verses we intentionally read all together at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Verse 28, he rules over the nations. Verse 30, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The resurrection shapes our lives today because we, again, just found ourselves in the story. We are sitting here 3,000 years and counting after King David wrote this down. And we are those people who were yet unborn that have been told of the person and work of Jesus. And now, church, it's our turn to play our part. In whatever time the Lord has for us here, it is our turn to play the part in declaring the same name to our generation and those that follow us so that 3,000 years from now, if the Lord has not yet returned, this gospel will be proclaimed to a people yet unborn. So parents, this is your message to your children as they grow up. Time and time and time and time and time again, you're going to testify when they're in your home that he has done it. Church, this is your message to your unbelieving co-workers and classmates and teammates and family members and neighbors and friends that he has done it. 
This is your reminder to one another in this church as we struggle through suffering and trials to look upon Christ, for he has done it. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Let's pray. Father, we want to worship you for how great you are, for you have done it. And Father, I pray that none of us who are believe in you would leave this room without having that affirmation deep down into our bones, Lord, that this great reversal is where we find ourselves in the story, saved by grace and now commissioned to live for you, embody you in the way that we love one another, and proclaim you as the Savior and King of this world, to tell others they too can be included in the promise. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring salvation to this place for your name's sake. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and respond in song together.